today. But you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're nearing the end of this chapter. And I hope by now, if you've been with us, you know the, the thrust of this passage, the competition of authority that we're seeing between the religious leaders and Jesus Christ. And we notice that, uh, as we looked at last week, after the one scribe asks what the greatest commandment is, and he answers wisely, we find at the end of that passage that no one else dared to ask him any more questions. The questions are over. Jesus has passed the test, and now Jesus starts to go a little bit on the offensive. In today's passage, he asks a riddle. Who, who here loves a good riddle? All right, I hate riddles, but... <laughs> Since I was, it's only four months ago that I was a youth pastor, I want to ask some riddles today, okay? Um, let's see what, how you do. Uh, we'll start with an easy one here. John's father had three sons, Snap, Crackle, and who? John. Uh, let's try this one. Uh, can you name three consecutive days without using the words Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? I heard it yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Very good. All right, just one more, just for fun. Um, there are 30 cows in a field and 28 chickens. How many didn't? Wow, that was quick. <laughs> Who was that? Who was that? Andrew. Okay. If you didn't get it, think about it. All right. Yeah, the, 10. 10 is the answer. There's 30 cows in a field and 28 chickens. How many didn't? 10. I'll let you stew on that one as we uh, get into our message today. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to see in our passage today, Jesus... Guys, stop talking about it, all right? Stop discussing it. It's time to... to, Okay, I'll explain it. All right, so... There's 30 cows and 28 chickens. Oh! Oh! So how many cows didn't eat chickens? Ten of them. Can we move on now? Are we good? All right. Okay. All right, we're going to... Everyone's like, I'm going to use that one. Okay. Riddle in my, under my belt now I can use. All right. Now let's get to the Bible. Let's, 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 let's talk about the Bible now. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus' riddle today. Jesus shares a riddle with the crowd. We find in verse 35 of our passage that he is teaching in the temple. Again, the interrogation has ceased. No one's daring asking him any more questions, and now he is starting to teach in the temple as he often does. And in our passage today, he presents a confusing and perplexing riddle that points to the very basis of his authority over the religious leaders. So let's read this passage together, and then we'll pray before moving on. Mark chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how do the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calls himself, David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his authority over all things. I pray as we discover who he is this morning and consider the implications for our life, 
that we would come to know you more and as a result love you more. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we ask, look at this riddle today, the, 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 the purpose of this riddle is to answer a very important question, a very fun, fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And upon initial reading of this passage, perhaps the point of Jesus in his... Something changed there. I don't know. Uh, the point of Jesus' passage, uh, riddle, is to point toward who he is. And what exactly is he pointing toward? Well, as we consider this riddle together, let's walk through it today. And today is going to be kind of investigatory, all right? It's going to be digging into this riddle to try to discover the meaning of this passage. And as we conclude tonight, we're going to look at the implications for us. But let's look at this simple question that Jesus presents to the crowds. He asks the question, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, if you know your Bible, that might seem like a strange question to you. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, because he is the son of David. That should be clear. We know that, we, from this, we learn that the scribes have been teaching about the identity of the Messiah to the people. The concept of a coming anointed one was a common teaching. Everyone was looking for this Messiah especially during this time of Roman oppression. And so naturally, they were inquisitive about the identity, the lineage of this Messiah, this Christ. So the scribes have been teaching about the Messiah. We also learn from this question that the scribes have been teaching that the Messiah would be descended from King David. David is the greatest king of Israel, with whom God had made a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his offspring would reign on the throne forever. Like I said, this may seem like a strange thing for Jesus to question. Of course, the, of course the Christ is the son of David. Christ, that name, that title, means the anointed one. It's a term often used to describe a Davidic king. We see this prophecy that the Messiah will be of the son of David in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We read the whole passage. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's the prophecy. The Messiah would be the son of David. And then when we turn to the New Testament, we turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the New Testament. What do we read? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Even in the, our own book of Mark, we see two places where the identity of Christ is attributed to the son of David. Mark chapter 10, verses 47 through 48, we see blind Bartimaeus. Do you remember that story? He calls out and he identifies Jesus as the son of David. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. In the following passage, Mark chapter 11, verse 10, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowd cries out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This is a strange question. Why do the scribes teach that Christ is the son of David? Well, because that's what the Bible says. 
The scribes are accurately teaching the prophecies of the coming Messiah. He would be the son of David. You have to wonder at this point if the scribes are hearing Jesus' words and thinking, man, we've spent all this time trying to discredit and trap him with our questions. Did he just discredit himself? Did he just deny outright the prophecies of Scripture? This is a simple question, but it's a strange one. And so let's ask the question, is Jesus questioning Scripture here? Hardly. Because the very next thing he does is quote Scripture. And so as we continue to investigate this riddle, I want to now look at the perplexing passage that he identifies. In verse 36 of our passage, Jesus quotes King David himself. Specifically, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And if you were in our small groups this morning, you know that Psalm 110 is the most quoted or referenced psalms in the New Testament. It is a well-known passage. And he uses this passage to point out something that the scribes were overlooking, deliberately or not, about the identity of the Messiah. A couple of important observations as we look at Psalm, uh, verse 36, where Jesus says, David himself said by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus begins by identifying the human author. And who's the human author of Psalm 110? It's, it's David, King David. In fact, it's funny. So studying this passage, there's a lot of debate about who actually wrote Psalm 110. And for me, the answer is simple. Jesus told us, right, that King David himself wrote Psalm 110. So we're about to read the very words of King David, but he goes on to identify also the divine author. He says that David declared in the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That is the very authoritative and inspired Word of God. 2 Peter 1 verse 21 tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important for us to pause and note here that Jesus himself considered the Old Testament writings to be authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit inspired these words through David. We see elsewhere in the, Old, in the New Testament, Old Testament quotations attributed directly to the Holy Spirit. Acts 28, 25 through 27 attributes a passage of Isaiah to the Holy Spirit, where it says the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Hebrews 3, verse 7 attributes Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 3, 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. Later on in the same book, Hebrews 10, verse 15, attributes Jeremiah chapter 31 to the Holy Spirit. It says in that passage, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. So scripture is the inspired word of God. It is not simply the writings of man. It is the work of the Holy Spirit divinely moving along the human writers to write his words. And so let's try to understand this passage that Jesus quotes. We read in verse 36 of Mark 12 that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. As I mentioned, this is a quotation of Psalm 110. Can we turn there together, actually? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 110 as we consider this prophecy, this passage that Jesus sets forth 
as a riddle. Psalm 110. We see that right at the top, Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And right there in verse 1 is the verse that Jesus quotes. King David, as a human author, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks of two lords. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, while the Greek rotation in the New Testament says kurios, that's Lord, twice the same word, the Hebrew does not. Our English versions has Lord twice. But what does it say in Hebrew? If you look in Psalm 110, if, most likely your English version, the Lord is all capitalized. That's the divine name for God. That is Yahweh. The second Lord is the word Adonai. So Psalm 110 actually says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. So King David is writing down something that God, Yahweh, said to his own Lord, or Adonai means master. King David, king over Israel, says, God said to my master. Now, if, if, if my master is not in reference to Yahweh, who in the world could David be talking about? He's the king. Why did he say to David's master, what, what did he say to David's master? He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And if you read the rest of Psalm 110, you see that this master is clearly in reference to a Davidic king. So in other words, this master, this Adonai, is a descendant of David. All right, so let's see if we can understand this here. David is stating that one of his own descendants, the promised Messiah, is his master. This is fascinating. And so, because of this, Jesus puts forth a puzzling riddle. Look in verse 37 of our passage as we turn back to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 And in verse 37, the riddle is presented. David himself calls him the Messiah, this anointed one, the Christ. David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be David's son? If David himself calls the anointed one my master, how can the anointed one be a descendant of David? How can the son of King David be greater than King David himself? I mean, you would not consider a prince to be greater than his father, the king. This doesn't make sense. And so, this riddle is posed to those in the temple. The scribes have been teaching that the Messiah would be the son of David, but Psalm 110, a psalm that is prophesying about the coming Messiah, points to the fact that this Messiah, the son of David, is also greater than David, that David himself, speaking in the Holy Spirit, considered this descendant to be superior than himself. How can this be? Jesus does not provide the answer, but rather lets it hang in the air. And so it's left for us to answer. What is the answer? To this riddle. If 
the Messiah is the Son of God, and he is, how can he be also the Master? Is Jesus denying that he, the Messiah, was the Son of David? No, he is not denying that. This could not be the case. I believe Jesus is making the point that the Messiah was something more than just the Son of David. You see, the teaching of the scribes was accurate, but it was also incomplete. In fact, you could argue that an incomplete teaching of Christ is far more dangerous than preaching a false Christ. When you highlight one true element of Christ and deny or ignore another element of Christ, you mislead and draw a false picture of Jesus. So the scribes got the son of David part right, but what part were they missing? You don't have to turn there, but at the very beginning of the book of Mark, what is the first verse of the book of Mark? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of who? God. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. We see that even the demons, the unclean spirits, identify Jesus in this way. Mark chapter 3, verse 11, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of David? No, you are the son of God. Mark 5, verse 7. Again, they say, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. We see this theme continuing. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. This is the mountain of transfiguration. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And then if you were to flip to the very end of the book of Mark, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, And the centurion is looking up at this man hanging and bloodied on the cross. We read in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed out his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So what were the scribes missing? They were missing the divine sonship of the Messiah. That he was not only the son of David, but that he was also the Son of God. And if you're to look in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you see both of these truths brought together where we read, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, with a riddle, Jesus points to the authority by which He had been challenging the authority of religious leaders throughout this entire chapter, namely His own divinity and His own Lordship. Why could he stand up against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes? Because not only was he the son of David, but because he was the son of God and the Lord of all. And this is a claim that would get him crucified just two chapters later. 
In Mark chapter 14, when the high priest asks Jesus point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But now at this point in his ministry, just a couple days before he is crucified, Jesus points the scribes to the scriptures itself and poses a riddle to them, showing that they are cherry-picking scripture, that they are highlighting and focusing on one component of his role as the Messiah and ignoring the other. We cannot ignore certain passages in order to fashion Jesus into a savior of our own making. But this is exactly what the scribes had done. What did they like to focus on? The human lineage, the conquering king idea. Jesus, the Messiah, they didn't think it was Jesus. The Messiah will be the son of David. And what would he do? He would rescue us. He would come and conquer the enemies. He would drive out the Romans. He would deliver us. And so their hope in the Messiah was a purely physical one. It was a purely, purely one of deliverance from oppression. They had no acknowledgement of the spiritual reality of the Christ. But if Psalm 110 is true, and it is, then there are two important truths about the Messiah that they are overlooking. That Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Lord of all. And I believe this is the point of this passage. This is the point of this riddle. Jesus asks, how can this be? How can he be both his master and his son? Is because this Messiah is also the very Son of God. And it's because he's the Son of God that David points to the Messiah and says, You are my Lord. And now as we consider the implications for us as his followers today, if this is who Jesus is, how do we respond to this Messiah? Two simple points. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. So we must worship him. The scribes were focusing on the Messiah's human descent. They were viewing him according to the flesh. And how did that change their view of the Messiah's mission? Well, if you view the Messiah according to the flesh, how will you view his mission? According to the flesh. And so they looked at all the prophecies concerning this root of Jesse, this son of David, who trample his, tramples his enemies and establishes his kingdom forever. And they interpreted the role of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah, in merely human terms. Deliver us from our oppressors. Reestablish the glory of Jerusalem. Reclaim the throne of David. Now Christ would one day accomplish, will one day, accomplish all of these things as the son of David. But as the son of God, he came for a far greater and eternal purpose. We read in John 18, verse 36, that Jesus answered when he was on trial, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And we as humans, fallen humans today, fall into the same trap where we reduce the mission and purpose of Jesus, the Messiah, to purely human Terms. How do we take the mission of the Messiah and adapt it to our own preference? We may see things like, well, Jesus' mission was simply to show us how to love each other. That's just what the Messiah came to do. 
or Jesus' mission was to free marginalized people from oppression. That was his mission. Or Jesus' mission was to help us live a good life. And what that is, is a trivialization of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of God? The divine sonship of Jesus Christ points to a wealth of blessings that he came to offer. And because Jesus is not only the Son of David, but also the Son of God, it makes an incredible difference. Some of these things that makes a difference in our lives. First of all, the Son of God offers salvation from sin and death. We tend to focus on the problem around us. We want a Savior who will rescue us from those external problems, but Jesus entered our world and showed us that the biggest problem is inside of us, that we need to be saved from the sin that indwells us. And so while the scribes and other people in Jerusalem were looking at the Messiah as someone who'd simply deliver them from oppression, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to rescue us from our own sin. Jesus offers a greater salvation than you can possibly imagine. Because he is the son of God, he offers hope beyond this life. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, that if in Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, if, we, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we're of all people most to be pitied. The Son of God offers a hope that extends beyond the world itself. And by his death and resurrection, he offers that hope that cannot be taken away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what the Son of God delivers. Thirdly, the Son of God, because Jesus is the Son of God, he offers adoption into a heavenly family. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, the Son of God, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As the Son of God, Jesus comes to bring us into his family, to make us his children, as we are united to him in his death and resurrection. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. But it was, the, it was this mission that the scribes and other religious leaders were completely blind to. They didn't see the need for these things. They didn't see a need for salvation from sin and death, or a hope beyond this life, or adoption into a heavenly family. They wanted deliverance from their oppressors. They had a limited view of the Messiah. But thank God that Jesus knew exactly what kind of Messiah they needed. And God knows what you need too. You need a Messiah who is the Son of God. God in the flesh. And because Jesus is God in the flesh, because he is the Son of God, Jesus is the Lord of all. And so we must submit to him. Because Jesus is the Son of God, what does David call him? David calls this future Messiah, my Lord, my Master. So a clear understanding of Jesus must include not only his deity, but his lordship. And in veiled language, Jesus is implying to the scribes that rather than challenging Jesus, 
They should be falling on their faces before their Lord and Master. If he is God, then he is Lord. We hear Peter later quote from Psalm 110 on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 34, where Peter says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The scribes were viewing the Messiah strictly as a Savior and a human Savior at that. But the identity of the Messiah is far more than just a Savior. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he has conquered death by the blood of the cross. And he is your master. He is your Lord. And just as David, a king of Israel, called this future Messiah my Lord, so should we. We must submit to him as our Lord. The Greek word kurios has two connotations. It points to both ownership and authority. Do you see Jesus as having both ownership and authority over your life? The Lord of all has ownership. Acts 20 verse 28 tells us that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. He is at the right, he he has the right as the Christ to have ownership over his people. Our life is not our own. You are bought with a price. Jesus did not die simply to rescue you. He died also to purchase you from your sin. He is your Lord. He has ownership over you. Are you rightly related to Jesus? Do you see him in this way? Do you truly understand who he is and what he did? And if you truly understand that, you know that he has ownership over your life. You cannot embrace his deity and deny his lordship over you. To say that Jesus is God, but say he is not my master. What is that saying? When he saved you, he bought you. The Lord of all has ownership. And because of that, the Lord of all has authority. If Jesus has ownership, then by right he has authority. We submit to him as our master. We are not our own authority. We submit to his good and gracious rule over our lives because he is Lord of all. Are you seeking to claim authority over your own life? Or have you given that authority to Christ that is rightfully his? Now I'll say it's easy for us to hear the terms ownership and authority in purely oppressive terms. Perhaps that's why we push against it. Granted, I'm sure many of us have seen authority misused and abused too many times to even view the word itself in any positive light. Perhaps when you see the word ownership and authority, you just cringe. But while mankind can and does often abuse it, the lordship of Christ is nothing like the lordship of man. While his lordship should be a warning and a wake-up call to those who are blatantly rebelling, his lordship to the downcast and brokenhearted should be the most soothing comfort and greatest source of calming reassurance 
you can have. He has ownership over your life because he loves you more than you can imagine, and he can only work in accordance with his glory and your good. He has authority over your life and promises to guide you in a good path. Ask yourself the question, does a shepherd have both ownership and authority over his sheep? He does. Is the presence of the shepherd an oppressive reality or a comforting reality for the sheep? The lordship of the shepherd is the greatest comfort a sheep has. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's what the lordship of Jesus looks in your life. That's what his ownership and authority looks like practically in your life. Do you embrace his lordship? Do you see him as your master, the one who owns you, the one who bought you? And isn't it true that we like to embrace certain parts of Jesus' identity while ignoring others? We rejoice in the love of Jesus and the free grace that he offers. But all that stuff about him owning my life and having authority over me, let's ignore that part. It's really inconvenient for me and my own plans for my life. And so I'm just going to pretend like those passages of Scripture aren't there. But man, the grace stuff, the love stuff, the, 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 the adoption, anything that, that, that makes me feel, feel happy or feel satisfied, I'll, I'll embrace that. That sounds great. But these inconvenient truths about his claim over my life, I'll ignore that part. And when we do that, who are we worshiping? We're worshiping ourselves, but ultimately we're creating a false idol, aren't we? We're idol worshipers. We've made Jesus into our own image. We see in our passage that the great throng heard him gladly. And yet it is the same crowd that would soon crucify him. We can sit here and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus is God, and we can hear that gladly. But you know what I fear? Sometimes we, we say amen to that, and then we leave, and we go about our week, and there's nothing in our lives that point to the fact that Jesus is our Lord. We'll acknowledge the truths about him that we want to acknowledge. We sit here and say amen to the Lordship of Christ but so often our lives do not reflect the lordship of Christ. We sit here and we hear these gladly. But embracing these truths and living by them is a different story. Don't embrace part of Jesus. Isn't that what the scribes were doing? He's the son of David. Embrace all of Jesus. He is the son of David but he is also the Son of God. He is the Lord of all. And it is only when we come to embrace all of Jesus, his deity as the Son of God, and his authority as the Lord of all, 
that we experience the freedom and the grace that only comes from Him alone. So in this passage, we see a perplexing riddle. Strange question, but it points to one of the most important truths and doctrines about Jesus Christ. Are you going to embrace that truth for yourself? Do you embrace Christ as your God and your Lord? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for how your truth in your word highlights exactly what we need to hear. God, perhaps there's those here who, like the scribes, like rejoicing in one part of your identity, but, re- but rejecting and ignoring the less convenient parts of your identity. Denying your claim over their life. Ignoring your authority and ownership over them. Lord, I pray you'd help us all to see all of you. To see everything about you. Your deity, your lordship, your goodness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us become more like you as we gaze on who you are. In your son's name.